Hi everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here with a quick promo message for you. First of all, thanks for listening to the China History Podcast. My everlasting gratitude for checking it out. Hope you like it. I wanted to let you know about a couple other Teacup Media shows. Even if you're not a tea drinker, please go check out my Tea History Podcast. We humans collectively down about a billion cups of tea a day. And other than the water we drink and the air we breathe, nothing is consumed in greater quantities than tea. The Tea History Podcast explores tea's roots as a bitter medicine that China's tea masters transformed into a beverage that inspired a million great ideas. The history of how tea developed over the ages and how every single civilization on earth fell for it, it's a great story. The Tea History Podcast. And while I have you, please also give a listen to another history show called the Chinese Sayings Podcast. The Chinese language is chock full of thousands and thousands of these idioms or Chinese sayings called Chengyu in Mandarin. Every one of them is grounded in some event or story from Chinese history. And at the Chinese Sayings Podcast, each episode, we look at one, break it down, tell the story behind it, oftentimes featuring historical characters straight out of the China History Podcast. It's always a treat to learn how only four Chinese characters can express so much meaning. Whether you speak Chinese or not, you can still appreciate these short six to eight minute podcasts. I welcome you to check it out. The Chinese Sayings Podcast. Okay, before we start rolling with the episode, let me welcome you to check out my website at teacup.media, where you can find the gateway to my social media profile, lists of all the Chinese terms used in every episode of every show, the teacup store where you could buy some nice gear, as well as links to donate to the show and support me in my mission to bring you these podcast shows. Thanks a bunch, everyone, and I hope you enjoy the program. Greetings, everyone. Welcome back to another China History Podcast episode, the 280th one so far. Still plenty more to go. Barely scratched the surface after 11 years. Today, after so many requests over the past decade, I am finally getting to the Taiping Rebellion. I must admit, I purposely avoided this story because, I don't know, I felt it's been talked about ad nauseum and written about, and I already mentioned it in that eight-part Qing Dynasty overview. But with so many people still emailing me about presenting this topic, I figured, well, that must count for something. So, what the hey, here it is. So this one will no doubt take a few episodes before we bring the curtain down on the Taiping Heavenly King. If you're already quite familiar with this story, I hope you'll stick around anyway and refresh your memory. China today is perhaps at its strongest economically, militarily, and by so many other measures. I guess it's all relative depending on the times you live in, but it's hard to think of a time in its long history when China was as all-powerful as it is today. Well, in this series, we're going to see China at perhaps its lowest point, in a state of weakness and helplessness that, well, in the context of today's PRC, seems like a million years ago. But in the minds of not a small number of Chinese, it's like it happened yesterday. By the start of the Taiping Rebellion, China was already in the ninth year of the so-called Century of Humiliation. Between the start of the Opium War in 1839 and the victory of Mao and the Communists in 1949, the Chinese nation experienced a lot of lows. But these years, between 1850 and 1870, 
they are among the worst. Not just for the widespread death and destruction of people's livelihoods, but in the humiliation. Heaped on top of a terrible loss of face already suffered by China in 1842. 20 million people died as a result of this movement, led by Hong Xiaoquan. That's the number popularly used. 20 million, or as high as 40 million. What's the real number? It's anyone's guess. But the scale of these national catastrophes and the convulsions felt across every aspect of society, from the palaces of the Forbidden City to the poorest, most despondent peasant family, these numbers serve to shock us to our senses. As of this moment, globally, the WHO says just under 4.2 million deaths have occurred from COVID. That's worldwide. If there's any truth to the 20 million figure of total fatalities from the Taiping Rebellion, COVID deaths are only 20% of what the Taiping Rebellion caused. And that was only in China. And though it spread to 14 of China's 19 provinces at the time, if you zoom in, it mainly happened in only one part of China, along the Yangtze River, from about Wuhan in the Middle Reaches to Shanghai perhaps a hundred miles north and south of the river. Without the benefit of having the kinds of weapons of mass destruction we enjoy in our day, 20 million deaths is much harder to achieve than just by killing alone. That much death, you need a lot of help from other mass murderers like famine, natural disasters, disease, local feuds, and failed harvests. You see, after... Experiencing the kind of prosperity that China had enjoyed from about the Qing Xunzhi Emperor in the 17th century to Qianlong, China's population exploded in size. At the start of the Qing, 1644, China's population was roughly 140 million. A couple decades into Qianlong's 60-plus year reign, the population was already 225 million. And by the end of Qianlong's reign, it was about 330 million. And another 100 million people would be calling China home in only the next half century. When the good times ended, the momentum of population growth did not. And this helped immeasurably in the scale of deaths and the scope of the combined human suffering that occurred during the 1850s and 60s. It also contributed mightily to the migration of a lot of Guangdong and Fujian people to lands overseas. The star of the Taiping Rebellion was Hong Xiaoquan, born on New Year's Day 1814, during the reign of the Jiaqing Emperor, the son of Qianlong. Qianlong got to reign during the most prosperous and glorious period of the Manchu Qing dynasty. The dynasty not only peaked under Qianlong, but began its decline as well and it would fall to its lowest depths during the sad reign of the Xianfeng Emperor, where most of our story takes place. Like our old friend Huizong of the Northern Song, Qianlong, during the latter part of his reign, rested on his laurels, and in his later years preferred enjoying a good time, dabbling in the arts, writing poems, and drinking the finest teas in all the land. He didn't end up as poorly or tragically as Hui Zong, but when we trace the breadcrumbs of the demise of the Qing back to its source, it's to the great Qianlong where it all leads. 
It was Qianlong's grandson, son of Jia Qing, who got to experience the first smackdown from the Western powers, Britain chiefly. The Daoguang Emperor, he reigned 1820 to 1850. These were the formative years of Hong Xiuquan's life. Hong grew up in present-day Huadu City, just north of Guangzhou. He came from a Hakka family who, like so many other Hakka Chinese, tried to run from their oppressors who resented them, going back to the earliest times, to the 4th and 5th centuries when they started to migrate en masse from the north and central China to south of the Yangtze River. The Hakkas concentrated around the present-day city of Meizhou, eastern Guangdong, near the Fujian border. But not all Hakkas ended up there. They were spread out all over southernmost China in the provinces of Fujian, Guangdong, Jiangxi, Guangxi, and Guizhou. Having migrated to these lands and speaking a completely unrelated and unintelligible language from the original inhabitants of these places, they were marginalized, picked on, harassed, sometimes killed, and forced up in the hills where the less desirable agricultural land and poorer economic prospects were. But there were plenty of mining opportunities in these hills and mountains, so Hakkas became the greatest miners China would ever see. Last two episodes, we looked at their mining experiences in West Borneo. Having so many Hakka miners among Hong Xiuquan's faithful will prove valuable later on when the Taiping army starts tunneling under and blowing up city walls. Hong Xiuquan was the fourth of five children born in this Hakka family. His family was poor, but not destitute, and like many in his situation, the family pinned their hopes on Hong's success as a candidate for the imperial civil service exams. During the 1830s, Hong Xiuquan tried three times to pass, each time failing miserably. In 1836, prior to sitting for his second attempt at this Shengyuan, or Xiuqai degree, in the city of Guangzhou, also known as Canton, Hong chanced upon a Christian missionary said to have been Edwin Stevens himself, preaching through an interpreter who may or may not have been Liang Afa, and he was handed Liang's book entitled Chenshi Liang Yan, Good Words to Admonish the Age, or Exhorting the Age. It was written in 1832 and printed in Guangzhou. Liang's book consisted of nine chapters containing his wisdom from all his years of Christian study. There were stories from both the Old and New Testaments, and it served as a solid working man's overview of Christianity. Liang Afa went all over Guangzhou, passing out thousands and thousands of copies of this book, and he developed a strategy of targeting potential converts at these locations where the civil service exams were held. And he'd follow these Qing officials from place to place where they held the exams and preached to these, in his reckoning, high-priority prospective Christians. Hong Xiuquan was handed this book, and whether or not he glanced at it is unknown, but as the popular narrative goes, he didn't bother reading it, but neither did he discard it. Upon failing for the second time, he went home and placed it on a shelf somewhere to languish until the appointed time. 
He tried a third time to pass the exam in 1837. He didn't have any better luck than the first two outings. And after this third unsuccessful attempt, the stress and the disappointment caused Hong to suffer what may have been a nervous breakdown. Following this mental collapse for about 40 days, he entered a period of delirium where he experienced certain visions and hallucinations, including one of a fair-haired, bearded man who presented him with a sword, followed by a younger man who urged him to use this sword to slay these demon devils. And in this vision, Hong referred to this younger man as elder brother. And in this dream, or whatever it was, he also saw the venerable Confucius being dressed down harshly by this godlike father and son. Hong recovered from this breakdown, and like many a failed civil service exam candidate before him, he ended up teaching in a village school near his home, north of Guangzhou. And during this time, he met up with a distant cousin and fellow resident of Huadu named Feng Yunchan. Feng was also a Hakka who had fared poorly in the exams and wound up teaching. These two became quite close. I'm not sure if Feng Yunshan kept trying to pass, but Hong Xiuquan decided to give it one more go and attempted a fourth time to achieve that hoped-for Xiuqai degree. And he failed. The year was 1843, and it was only at that time, after being paid a visit by Feng Yunshan, that Hong picked up and read Liang Afa's book and perused those nine chapters. We can't say for sure, of course, but from that random act, 20 million people would perish. In reading this book, Good Words to Admonish the Age, all those visions he had after his failed third attempt became crystal clear in their meaning. The fair-haired bearded man who had handed him this demon-killing sword was God. And the younger one, who told him how to wield that sword against demons, who he had referred to as Daka, or elder brother, that was Jesus. And in that moment of clarity, and with absolute certainty, Hong Xiuquan figured out he was Jesus' younger brother, which meant he too was the son of God. And he came to this realization that his destiny was to rid China of these Yao, or demons, and furthermore, when these demons were eradicated, it would usher in a period of Taiping, or great peace, that would lead to everyone across the land embracing brotherhood and harmony with each other. And he doesn't openly equate these demons with the Manchus. Not yet. As for Feng Yunshan, he was converted early on to this religion. And together, Hong, Feng, as well as another cousin who became important much later on, Hong Ren Gan, they commenced on their mission to go hit the street corners and villages and bring more people over to their faith. This was the beginnings of what would later on become the God-worshipping society, or Bai Shangdi Hui. The faith they were preaching was a melange of Hong's interpretations of Christianity as he understood it, as well as what he got out of Liang Afa's book. Along with Hong Xiuquan's distorted view of Christianity were certain aspects of Chinese folk religion. The Christianity that Hong will espouse will later be vilified by the missionaries of the day. They called it downright blasphemous. 
There was no room in Hong's Christianity for the Christian concept of love of your fellow person or charity or humility. At best, you could say what Hong came up with was inspired by the Protestantism ministered by the missionaries of the day. So these two zealots, Hong and Feng, together took to the towns and villages of their part of southern Guangdong and began preaching. By this time, Hong had married a girl from his village named Lai. Who did they preach to mostly? Well, they had a very willing group of people in their fellow Hakkas. They were attracted to what Hong and Feng had to say. Hong Xiaochuan was a very charismatic individual and was quite effective at persuading his fellow Hakkas to embrace this faith. Aside from speaking the Hakka dialect, Hong knew how his people thought, what their values were, and how to win them over to his side. In most cases, as he went from one poor village or town to the next, it wasn't that much of a stretch to convince people with nothing to lose that they could be saved by coming over to this religion. And all this public preaching led to a heck of a lot of early converts. Local people took notice and word spread about these Hakkas who were all starting to flock to this new and strange religion that promised so much to its faithful. And when Hong and his followers started to bash Confucianism, deface Confucian shrines as well as other ancestral shrines, the local officials and other traditionalists, they took notice. And that's when the backlash began. In April of 1844, Hong and Feng went to the big city, Guangzhou, to go preach. It didn't take too long before they came under pressure at many of the places they spread their message. So, to escape the heat, they ended up being sent to a relative who lived around Guiping in eastern Guangxi province. During this short period in Guiping, Hong began writing down his Exhortations to the Worship of the One True Lord, which will lead later on to his Taiping Bible. These family relatives that uh, Feng and Hong stayed with, they, like a lot of conservatives, were aghast at what Hong and Feng were preaching, and by November of that year, they had to show them the door. So Hong Xiaochuan went back to Guangzhou. As for Feng Yunshan, he stayed behind and continued to preach around Guiping, he will be extremely successful in expanding the faith, bringing in a couple thousand adherents. Spread out across the hills of eastern Guangxi province were no small number of Hakkas, living peacefully among their own. In 1845, Feng slowly made his way north, about 40 kilometers away, to a place called Zijingshan, or in English, Thistle Mountain. And what Yan'an was to the CCP. That's what Thistle Mountain was to the God worshippers. The prequel to the Taiping Rebellion and the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. The area around this part of Guangxi was chock full of potential converts, mostly disaffected and down-and-out Hakkas who had been migrating to Guiping for years, as well as Zhuang and Yao hill tribesmen. And from these groups, the ranks of God worshippers began to swell all thanks to the efforts that Feng Yunshan carried out at Thistle Mountain. In addition to these people, the land was also rife with Tian Di Hui members. The Tian Di Hui was a secret society 
known in English as the Heaven and Earth Society, and many of them, too, found something in this God-worshippers organization gathering up on Thistle Mountain. Meanwhile, back in Guangzhou, Hong Xiaoquan and his cousin Hong Rengan were proselytizing and teaching to earn their daily bread. In 1847, Hong got a chance for a couple months to study the Bible under the noted missionary from Tennessee, Issachar Roberts. With Roberts, he will get his first chance to study the newly translated Bible, credited mostly to Carl Gutzlaff's efforts. Hong will try to get Issachar Roberts to baptize him, but this preacher, the first one in the door in China following the Treaty of Nanjing in 1842, eh, he found something lacking in Hong's character and refused to baptize him. So in July 1847, Hong Xiaochen headed back to Guangxi to hook up with Feng Yunshan, and when he arrived end August of that year, he got his first look at the work Feng had been doing up in Thistle Mountain while he was away. He had to have been impressed with what his cousin had been able to achieve in this short time, getting this whole God-worshipper society up and running, again, right here. With all this heavy lifting taken care of by Feng, would Hong Xiaochen have been able to achieve what he set out to do? Right here is a critical moment in the chain of events that led to the Taiping Rebellion. Because of the lawlessness in these wild parts of China, up in the hills and mountains of Guangxi, it was common for the local gentry to maintain their own private militias who often acted like Cossacks, preying on Certain elements of society, in this case, the Hakas, and the Hakas, never a people to back down from a fight, also organized their own self-defense militias. So by the time Hong arrived, this sizable flock that Feng Yunshan had assembled already had no small number of people handy with a gun or a sword, and they were already locked and loaded and ready for action. They just needed to beef up their numbers. During the summer of 1847, Hong and Feng worked together to interpret the dreams and visions that Hong had had a decade before. From this, they began to cobble together the creed of this God-worshipper society, as well as continue their work on the Taiping Bible that borrowed so heavily from the Gutzlaff Bible. This included their take on the Ten Commandments. Not surprisingly... A strong whiff of anti-Confucianist feeling was also added to their religion. And whether or not this came from the mental torture Hong endured in the civil service exams is not known, but this was likely the case. Confucius had been criticized in Hong's visions, and plenty of fault was found in his philosophy. In January 1848, Feng was captured by some Bunde militia who turned him over to the Guangzhou authorities. So Hong headed in that direction to try and negotiate a bribe. And after a period of negotiations, he was successful in springing his comrade from the slammer. For most of 1848, these two were absent from Thistle Mountain. And while they were gone, two new faithful joined the community at the beginning of the year. These were Yang Xiaoqing, and Xiao Chao Gui. These two will join Hong Xiaochen and Feng Yunshan as leaders of the Taiping movement. While Hong and Feng were away from Thistle Mountain in 1848, these two, Yang and Xiao, 
they use this time to muscle in on the leadership of the movement by demonstrating two very unique and impressive skills. Yang Xiaoqing would work himself up into a trance and could communicate directly with God. As for Xiao Chaogui, not to be outdone, he was able to communicate directly with Jesus. And with a skill set like that, these two worked their way into the leadership of the God-worshippers. By the time Hong and Feng arrived back on Thistle Mountain in the fall of 1848, these two, Yang and Xiao, had already made themselves comfortable. Rather than head straight into a power struggle, Hong and Feng accepted their direct pipelines to the father and son as legit, and the four of them combined to make up the leadership of the society. They continued their teaching and recruitment activities from the surrounding area, and by 1849, the number of God-worshippers had increased to more than 10,000. More than just miners and farmers signed up. Others as well who brought critical skills to the movement joined too. These included pawnbrokers who knew how to handle money, and educated clerks who were familiar with all manners of administration. They, and others too who had their own reasons, came to Thistle Mountain. River pirates were also recruited, and those guys, well, their skill set was fighting, something that would come in handy clear through to 1864. Things really started to hot up for the God Worshipper Society in 1850. The core of the leadership was made up of Hong Xiaochen, Feng Yunshan, Yang Xiaoqing, Xiao Chaogui, and a fifth person, a Hakka like all the rest, named Shi Da Kai. By now, and for the first time, Feng Yunshan started to openly call for the God Worshippers to rise up in revolt. Early 1850, the God Worshippers began organizing their ranks along militant lines. By now, Hong had clearly pointed to the Manchus as the demons that his elder brother Jesus spoke to him about in 1837. Though a dislike of the Manchus was something almost innate amongst these southern Chinese, by the end of 1849 and early 1850, there was no doubt about who the God Worshippers' leaders considered the enemy and who they were determined to overthrow. Their kind of Christianity had certain... Chinese elements intertwined with the religion and was being crafted as something geared towards militant action rather than the golden rule. As for economics, finance, and strategy, they made everything up as they went along. And the faith was puritanical to the extreme. Males and females were segregated. Women had Equal rights to men and everything, including property rights, and even had their own battalions in the Taiping military. Opium, booze, and gambling were strictly forbidden. And everyone, no matter how little or how much they had, put all their assets into a common pot. And everyone belonged to a unit. Things really started to get strange right about now. Early 1850, Hong Xiu Chen was now walking around in yellow robes, styling himself as a messianic-type figure in the Christian tradition. The other four leaders, Feng, Yang, Xiao, and Shi, were being styled as kings. And of course, Yang and Xiao had this amazing ability to commune directly with the Heavenly Father and the Son. By August-September of that year, the arming and organizing of the God-worshippers had progressed to the extent that Hong 
decided to test his wings and agitate around his hometown in Huadu. Whilst in that area, the Qing sent forces to get rid of them, and Hong, Feng, and their troops got pinned down there, surrounded by Qing soldiers. While this is all happening, back on Thistle Mountain, after awakening from a half-year-long trance, and after several nice long talks with God, Yang Xiaoqing awakened and led sufficient troops to come to Hong's aid. And after escaping from that predicament, the two leaders assembled in the town of Jintian, just south of Thistle Mountain. And there, all the religious faithful awaited their marching orders. By the end of October, 1850, everyone was ready, awaiting the call from on high. And as they continued to organize and train, more and more recruits kept pouring into their ranks, joining up in numbers that were nearly unmanageable, so fast were they coming. And as the year 1850 came to a close, the Qing military, for the first time, learns of these militant god-worshippers, and not surprisingly, considered them a threat. The name Hong Xiaochen is not yet on their radar, but he soon will be. The imperial court in Beijing had reached out to local gentry militias and enlisted their support in nipping this one in the bud by attacking them at their base in Jintian. Then on the last day of the year, 1850, the god-worshippers were attacked head-on with local and Qing imperial troops. In their first outing against these troops, they performed well, beating them, killing their commander, and sending the troops back to where they came from. But the fighting left the god-worshipper troops in disarray. Hong Xiaotran decided it was time to bail from the Jintian area for safer lands elsewhere. Strangely enough, the guidebook that the god-worshippers were using to organize their ranks is none other than the rites of Zhou, the Zhou Li, the ancient book on bureaucracy and organizational theory. Even when they were at the height of their power, the Taiping top brass always referred to the rites of Zhou as a guide. The Qing military quickly found out these militant hakas who beat them in their first battle needed to be taken more seriously. So in 1851, the battles continued and no effort was spared to stamp them out, except they weren't so easy to beat. Since 1847, 1848, 49, they had had plenty of time up in those mountains to train and prepare. And one other thing, don't ever underestimate the power of faith in these kinds of situations. They were all fighting for something, in their minds at least, that was higher and greater than the Emperor of China. And then in March 1851 came the big moment when Hong Xiaochen declared to his now 20,000 or so adherents the founding of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, the Taiping Tianguo, and many historians trace the date of the start of the Taiping Rebellion to this moment. And when this happens, in a tradition going back at least to the three kingdoms of the third century, these five men leading this Taiping movement became Jiebai Xiongdi, or sworn brothers. And these were Feng Yunshan, Yang Xiaoqing, Xiao Chaogui, Shi Da Kai, all led by Hong Xiaochen, a couple of failed would-be scholar officials and a few uneducated men from the hills who, despite their shortcomings, had in them 
formidable military and organizational abilities, and together they made history, a history that shook China to such an extent that some of us can feel it today, scrolling through our apps and reading our blogs. The one thing, no, actually the main thing they had going for them was that this movement, led by Hong Xiaochen, the younger brother to the Lord Jesus Christ, they were rising up at a time when the Manchu Qing dynasty was already in a seemingly irreversible decline. So that made things much easier for them. If they were facing the Manchu Qing army of Kangxi's time, they would have made fast work of Hong, his sworn brothers, and every last one of his followers. But alas, in 1851, the Qing military was a far cry from those 17th and 18th century days. Now that the heat was on and these Taiping rebels had a target on their back for the first time, the leadership knew. They were sitting ducks in these four main areas in and around Thistle Mountain, the city of Guiping. The Qing army knew where they were now and were coming to get them. And just as the Manchu Qing army gets set to put a quick and decisive end to these fanatical rebels, China will soon be racked with rebellions across the entire nation. But in 1851, they only had these zealots in eastern Guangxi to deal with. They knew where they were, and that they'd need to come at them in bigger numbers. So the Taipings, these followers of Hong Xiaochen, after being chased all around eastern Guangxi, are led to the town of Yong'an. And after seizing the town on September 25th, 1851, they take a breather and get ready to embark on a long march that will lead them all the way to the city of Nanjing, and that's where we are going to pick up next time in part two. We're only in the beginning right now. Hong Xiaochen is the Tianwang, the heavenly king of this religious movement, now ramping up to do some serious damage in the next door province of Hunan. And wherever they fight, no matter whether they win or lose, they keep packing on the new recruits and seizing arms, ammo, supplies, and anything else of use to them. Once again, anyone who's getting tripped up with the names and places, don't despair. Just go to the website at teacup.media, click on the episode for today's program, and all the terms are there for you. If you want to download the whole list, just click download and you'll have a fantastic PDF that you could print or save to your device. You won't get plowed under with all the Chinese names. And while you're there, explore the website at teacup.media. My entire being on this planet is plugged into that website. So feel free to go check it out and drop me a line and let me know what you think. I'm easy to find. Okay, Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles City. Another scorcher of a day here. More Taiping Rebellion next time, I assure you. So sit tight for that, and I'll see you in a couple weeks for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.